If you would, open your Bibles to Psalm 103. Psalm 103. Our text is found in Psalm 103, but we'll be looking at a number of passages as we have throughout this series. And one in particular is Genesis 20, if you want to um, turn there and then keep your finger there. In Psalm 103, beginning in verse 13, we read, As a father has compassion on his children... So the Lord has compassion on those who fear him, for he knows how we are formed. He remembers that we are dust. As for man, his days are like grass. He flourishes like a flower of the field. The wind blows over it, and it is gone, and its place remembers it no more. But from everlasting to everlasting, the Lord's love is with those who fear him, and his righteousness with their children's children with those who keep his covenant and remember to obey his precepts. I'm not a parent. I don't have any children. But as I read this passage, it does strike me strange that loving one's child, having compassion on one's child, should involve that child fearing the parent. I think in part it is because I struggle when it comes to the matter of the fear of the Lord. I'm familiar enough, and I'm sure that you are, with Proverbs 1.7, the fear of the Lord is the beginning of knowledge. But the question keeps coming up. This is our fifth Sunday, looking at the fear of the Lord. But the question keeps coming up, why should we fear the Lord? Thus far in the series, we've seen that the fear of the Lord is found throughout Scripture, from Genesis to Revelation, that the fear of the Lord involves and includes the fear that is of uh, dread and terror, as well as the fear of reverence and awe. And then we saw that the fear of the Lord should involve a correct concept of God, a sense of the presence of God, and a constant awareness of our obligations to God. And then last week we saw that the fear of the Lord is a promised blessing to the people of the New Covenant. Jeremiah, moved by the Holy Spirit, wrote of the New Covenant saying, They will be my people and I will be their God. I will give them singleness of heart and action so that they will always fear me for their own good and the good of their children after them. I will make an everlasting covenant with them. I will never stop doing good to them. And I will inspire them to fear me so that they will never turn away from me. As I mentioned last week, the ESV has, I will so that they will always fear me. Let me find my place here. I will put the fear of me in their hearts. Um, I find it interesting that the ESV seems to not be afraid of the word of fear, whereas the NIV oftentimes will put in reverence something else. But the ESV is very clear that God, in fact, will, in fact, put the fear of God in our hearts as people of the new covenant. We saw last week that the fear of the Lord is a work in the heart by the God of grace. We find this in Paul's letter to the Philippians. Therefore, my dear friends, as you have always obeyed, not only in my presence, but now much more in my absence, continue to work out your salvation with fear and trembling. For it is God who works in you to will and to act according to his good purpose. As I asked last week, so which is it? Is it God working in my heart Or is it my working out my salvation with fear and trembling? To which the answer is yes. It's not either or, it's both and. 
When God works in us, we are not simply puppets at the end of strings, that he's pulling the strings and so we do what God wants us to do. Somehow he's manipulating us. Or we should not think of ourselves as not having any initiative, if you wish, that we're simply waiting to be sort of moved along by God's Spirit. God works in our lives beneath the conscious level and what we find is that he works in our wills, in our affections, and he works in and through, behind us, beneath us, all around us. It is God who is working in us. And part of that work in the New Covenant is to give us the fear of the Lord. We need to recognize that we are the people of the New Covenant. We have just affirmed that by taking communion. God has placed in our hearts the fear of the Lord. And it is this fear that moves us to choose to do what is right, what is pleasing to him. Because we are his people and he is our God. In Jeremiah 31 we read, they will be my people and I will be their God. God is not simply a divinity, a deity who is out there. God, in fact, is here with us. We are his children. We belong to him and he belongs to us. And unlike the people of the old covenant, at least as Jeremiah sees it, we have a knowledge of God. So in Jeremiah 31, um, Jeremiah sees a time in the New Covenant when it will no longer be necessary for people to say, know the Lord, because people will know the Lord if they are God's people. They will be people of the New Covenant. And underneath all of this is forgiveness. We will have been forgiven. We have been forgiven of our sins. In Jeremiah 31, again, the end of the passage on the New Covenant, God says, For I will forgive their wickedness and will remember their sins no more. Included in the blessings of the New Covenant is the forgiveness of sins. And this is tied in with the fear of the Lord. Titus spoke on this, and I have mentioned it before in Psalm 130. Out of the depths I cry to you, O Lord. O Lord, hear my voice. Let your ears be attentive to my cry for mercy. If you, O Lord, kept a record of sins, O Lord, who could stand? But with you there is forgiveness, therefore you are feared. It is the fear of the Lord that gives us an appreciation of the forgiveness that we have been given. Again, I mentioned this last week. One pastor puts it this way. The gospel tells me that I am far worse, more flawed and more sinful than I imagine. And yet simultaneously, I am more loved and accepted by God than I ever dared to hope. It is this realization of God's grace and forgiveness that should provoke in us a spirit of reverence and of respect and worship. Simply the fear of the Lord. As God works in our lives, we are to have a recognition and realization of the place of the fear of the Lord. For all the difficulties we may have with the business of the fear of the Lord, let us continue our study today. And today what I want to look at is the relationship between the fear of the Lord and our behavior, our conduct. There are two things that I want to talk about. The first one I'll spend more time on than the second. But the first is this, and it's crucial. The fear of the Lord is the soil, if you wish. It is where things grow that produces a godly life. 
if you want to behave as you should, if you want to be a godly Christian, then the soil that is required is the fear of the Lord. If I have the fear of the Lord, what impact should that have on my life? Well, we'll look at a number of things. But if you would, turn to Genesis chapter 20. The other passages I I will simply read from my notes, but this one I want you to look at. To me, Genesis 20 is one of the fascinating passages in Genesis, which is a fascinating book in and of itself. Um, What makes Genesis 20 so fascinating is that it comes after 18 and 19. In chapter 18, the pre-incarnate Christ, the Lord Jesus, appears to Abraham with two angels. They're walking along and Abraham calls them in and he provides a grand meal for them. And it is at that point uh, that the Lord tells Abraham that the child is going to come. I will surely return to you about this time next year and and Sarah, your wife, will have a son. This is verse 10 of chapter 18. After almost a quarter of a century of the promise of a child, the Lord Jesus tells him, I'm going to come by next year, and when I come by, you're going to have a son. The second announcement that's made in chapter 18 is when the Lord says, Shall I hide from Abraham what I'm about to do? And he tells him, I'm about to destroy Sodom and Gomorrah. And you have that fascinating exchange in which Abraham says, Well, what if there are 50 righteous people? What if there are 45, 40, 30, 20? And he finally stops at 10. It's an amazing passage. Then we come to chapter 19. And Sodom and Gomorrah indeed are destroyed. So we have a prophecy made, an announcement given, and then we have the destruction of these cities. We come now to chapter 20. And if you look in the first three verses, Now Abraham moved on from there to the region of the Negev and lived between Kadesh and Shur. For a while he stayed in Gerar. And there Abraham said, to his wife Sarah, or said of his wife Sarah, she is my sister. Then Abimelech, king of Gerar, sent for Sarah and took her. But God came to Abimelech in a dream one night and said to him, you are as good as dead because of the woman you have taken. She is a married woman. Abimelech pleads ignorance. He didn't know. So verse 6, then God said to him in the dream, yes, I know you did this with a clear conscience, And and so I have kept you from sinning against me. That is why I did not let you touch her. Now return the man's wife, for he is a prophet, and he will pray for you, and you will live. But if you do not return her, you may be sure that you and all yours will die. And then verses 9, 10, and 11. Then Abimelech called Abraham in and said, What have you done to us? How have I wronged you that you have brought such great guilt upon me and my kingdom? You have done things to me that should not have been done. And Abimelech asked Abraham, what was your reason for doing this? Abraham replied, I said to myself, there is surely no fear of God in this place, and they will kill me because of my wife. This is the second time, by the way, in Abraham's life that he's pulled this stunt. The first time was years later. Uh, when they had first moved uh, to Canaan, they went to Egypt because of a famine, and Pharaoh was had his eye out for Sarah, and he said, she's my sister. He said, because if I say she's my wife, they'll kill me, she'll become a widow, and then they can take her legally. Um, almost a quarter of a century later, Abraham's doing this again. 
after God had made the promise. And that is what I think I find most striking. Um, The Lord tells him, this time next year you're going to have a son, and he allows his wife to be taken into a man's harem. I mean, the promise that God had made could have been voided by that. They go to the, the region, and Abimelech wants Sarah. She's my sister, and in fact, she was Abraham's half-sister. He takes her, and God appears to Abimelech and says, You're dead. You're as good as dead. What I find striking is Abimelech pleads ignorance and, and innocence, and God grants that, and he says, Listen, Abraham is a prophet. I'm going to have him pray for you. I don't know about you. I don't, I'm not sure I want Abraham praying for me. A guy who gives me his wife and lies about it? But in connection with what we're looking at, what is striking is what Abraham gives as his rationale. There is no fear of God in this place. In other words, where people, when people do not fear God, then we cannot expect right behavior out of them. We should not have an expectation of godly behavior. This is not to say that those who are non-believers cannot act ethically, or that they do not act ethically. I think that many of them do. Rather, I think the point is that the soil that produces ethical and godly behavior involves the fear of the Lord. By the way, Abraham exhibited a real lack of the fear of the Lord. He was more afraid of Abimelech than he was of God. I mean, God could have said, listen, I told you 25 years ago, I told you a few months ago, your wife's going to have a baby, and this is what you do? You're more afraid of Abimelech than you are of me. But a lack of the fear of God will lead us to act in unethical ways. The second story, and we've looked at Joseph before, but now we're going to look a bit later in the story. Um, We looked at when Potiphar's wife wanted him and he refused her. And he said, how then could I do such a wicked thing and sin against God? His brother sold him into slavery. He's been a slave. And yet he realizes that God watches what he does. After that, Joseph is imprisoned. And you know the story, the butler and the baker and... He's able to interpret their dreams. Pharaoh has dreams. Joseph is able to interpret them. He's raised the second in the kingdom. Seven good years, seven years of famine. And then Jacob's sons, Joseph's brothers, appear on the scene. Jacob has sent them down to Egypt to get grain. And Joseph doesn't tell them who he is. And in fact, what he does is he puts them in jail. And then after, well, in chapter Let me see where we are here. In chapter 39, on the third day, Joseph said to them, but they did not know it was him. If you are honest men, let one of your brothers stay here in prison while the rest of you go and take grain back to your starving households. But you must bring your youngest brother to me so that your words may be verified and that you may not die. This they proceeded to do. Joseph begins this conversation, however, by saying, do this and you will live, for I fear God. In other words, Joseph will act in an ethical way, or he does act in an ethical way, because he fears God. If we, as we struggle with sin in our lives, as we struggle with the vices that we've looked at, what we oftentimes fail to recognize is if we want things to grow, 
if we want our behavior to be appropriate, the soil must be the fear of the Lord. If we do not have the fear of the Lord, then I think in, in some sense we may have temporary relief, but we will not we will not act the way that we should. In Leviticus 19, there's an interesting verse. Uh, I would say even an unusual commandment. Do not curse the deaf or put a stumbling block in front of the blind, but fear your God, I am the Lord. You see, if a person is deaf, he or she cannot hear if you curse him or her. They cannot be hurt by what you say. They haven't heard what you've said. But this doesn't allow you to do so. God hears what you say. And therefore, don't curse the deaf. In the same way, don't put a stumbling block in the path of someone who's blind. He or she cannot see. They may be tripped up, but they don't know who did it. But God does because he can see all that we do. Our conduct is not to be generated by our fear of other people seeing us. And if we can get away with it, then we'll do it. Our conduct is to be governed by the fact that God sees all that we do. So, for example, um, when I teach and I give an exam, a a Christian student should not cheat um, simply because they might be able to get away with it or because their, their, their neighbor may see them. No, they are not to cheat because God, in fact, sees them. If I, in fact, were to leave the classroom and to say, listen, I'll be gone for an hour, take the exam, um, I don't see them, but God, in fact, sees them. Our behavior is to be governed not by the human audience, but by a realization that God sees all. We have examples of this in Scripture. I'll just mention one. In the book of Nehemiah, this is after the exile, and some of the exiles have gone back to the promised land, but Nehemiah is among those who have stayed. Um, But he's in a very high position. He actually works for Artaxerxes. Through a variety of circumstances, Nehemiah becomes the governor over the exiles who have now gone back to the promised land, who are in Jerusalem. And in chapter 5 he says, Moreover, from the 20th year of King Artaxerxes, when I was appointed to be their governor in the land of Judah, until his 32nd year, 12 years, neither I nor my brothers ate the food allotted to the governor. In other words, the people are supposed to pay taxes or give food. That goes to the governor. But the earlier governors, those preceding me, placed a heavy burden on the people and took 40 shekels of silver from them in addition to food and wine. Their assistants also lorded it over the people. But out of reverence for God, I did not act like that. The ESV again has, but I did not do so because of the fear of God. The fear of the Lord was enough to cause Nehemiah to walk on a path which did not allow him to take advantage of other people for the sake of personal gain. This, I think, should be a principle that governs our personal relationships. What should keep us, what can keep us from taking advantage of other people? What should make us sensitive to the needs of others? What should keep us from seeking only to fulfill our own needs and desires? What should provoke generosity in our giving to others? What should keep us from being unreasonable in our expectations of others? I could go on and on. But it should not be other people. It should be the fear of the Lord. That we do the things that we do because of the fear of the Lord. 
It is the soil in which godly conduct and behavior grows. We should have an eye not only that God is somehow watching us, but that we want to please him. One of the difficult things in Paul's writings comes to me, at least, when he writes about slaves. He gives instructions on how slaves are to behave. I think we'd be a lot happier if Paul had said all slaves should be freed. But he doesn't. This should not allow us to be blinded to the good things that Paul has to say with regard to slaves. In Colossians 3, Slaves, obey your earthly masters in everything and do it not only when their eye is on you and to win their favor, but with sincerity of heart and reverence for the Lord. Again, the ESV has, but with sincerity of heart, fearing the Lord. As a slave, one could serve with an eye to the master. Is the master around? That whenever he or she is around, I will work hard so I look good in their eyes and perhaps they will reward me in some way. Or, you know, I don't want them to see me slacking off because then I might get beaten. No, I'll, I'll work hard when the master's around. But the other way to serve, Paul tells us, is with sincerity of heart, fearing the Lord. Because a Christian slave should recognize that even when the master is away, the Lord is with me and he sees what I am doing. This is what should motivate our behavior at all times. What are the implications of this? I'll suggest three to you. First of all, consider the folly of trying to solve human problems or the problems of human conduct without considering the necessity of the fear of the Lord. Our ethics, God's ethics for us as his people, are rooted in faith, in our religious faith. If we get rid of that, then all bets are off. And in fact, I think this is one of the difficulties many Christians face today. That when they come together with God's people, uh, they worship God, they praise God, they fellowship with one another. But when they go to work, the fear of the Lord is not something that is in their thinking. And they seek to solve human problems, human dilemmas, without any thought of God or the fear of the Lord. And as a result, I think our, our behavior, our conduct may be less than ethical. It may be less than what it should be. Because it's not rooted in the fear of the Lord. It's rooted in something else. And as human beings, we will always fear. So if we don't fear God, we're going to fear someone else. And so it's the boss, it's our co-workers, spouse, neighbors, whatever. Um, we cannot solve the dilemmas of human conduct unless it is rooted in the fear of the Lord. And secondly, when you look at human history, there have been times when God has poured out his spirit in unusual ways, extraordinary ways, the great revivals we have seen. And what we see is when God does that, people have a fear of the Lord and it changes their behavior. Their conduct is changed by the fact that they have the fear of the Lord. It really impacts the way that they live. The third thing, and this sort of brings us back to where I started, consider the basis on which we should evaluate our influence on our children. Again, I'm not a parent. Those of you who have children, consider how it is that children are to be raised. In Psalm 34, verse 11, David writes, Come, my children, listen to me. I will teach you the fear of the Lord. Now, when you think about it, particularly as children get older, there are three sources of influence, primary sources. The first is the home. The second is school. 
And then thirdly, the church. One might say, well, shouldn't the church be first? Well, no. When you think of the amount of time that is spent here, it's much less than the time children spend in school or that they spend at home. The home, I think, is the place where the greatest influence should be found. And I'm convinced it is there that the fear of the Lord is to be taught. But as I said at the beginning, the idea of loving your children and them fearing the Lord almost seems counterintuitive. I love my children. I don't want them to be afraid of me, a parent might say. It's difficult. I'm convinced that the goal of being a parent is not to make your child your friend, but rather to guide the child to maturity and to adulthood. And there are times when fear is to be a part of this education. Consider when you teach a child about crossing a street or not running out into the street or putting objects in their mouth that don't belong there or sticking a fork in an outlet. I've had parents at me uh, tell me at different times in the past. Uh, one, I remember a father told me, you know, there's a difference between a child not eating his or her peas and running out in the street. And you might seek to correct them because they don't eat their vegetables, but that should not be the same on the same level as them running out into the street. And then I remember a particular incident that I was witness to where a mother said to a child who had put marbles in his mouth, if you ever put marbles in your mouth again, I will spank you harder than I've ever spanked you before. Saucer-sized eyes. But the point was, this is dangerous. And a child cannot always be reasoned with in the same way that God cannot always reason with us. And so, a part of training a child involves fear. This gets... This gets a little bit complicated because some children are much more sensitive in that regard than others. But to love one's child and to train one's child does involve the fear of the Lord. In Proverbs 1.7, I mentioned earlier, the fear of the Lord is the beginning of knowledge. And later in Proverbs chapter 1, this chapter serves as an introduction to the whole book of Proverbs, um, we have the call of wisdom as Solomon is trying to teach his son or son's wisdom begins at verse 28. Then they will call to me, but I will not answer. These are those who refuse the fear of the Lord. They will look for me, but will not find me. Since they hated knowledge and did not choose to fear the Lord, since they would not accept my advice and spurn my rebuke, they will eat the fruit of their ways and be filled with the fruit of their schemes. In other words, those who reject the fear of the Lord, those who reject wisdom and knowledge, will reap the consequences. I think part of the problem in this whole issue of with children and the fear of the Lord and God dealing with us is the issue of authority. And we, we dealt with this uh, last year when we were looking at the issue of authority. Many of us, I think, have for a while believed that authority is a result of the fall. That because of sin, we need to have people in authority. That if we lived in a perfect world, if Adam and Eve had not sinned and things had gone on, there you'd have a totally egalitarian society and everyone would be equal and no one would have authority. I'm beginning to see that that's simply not the case. That's simply not the case. David Koizos, uh, who's a political 
science, a scientist, a professor, has written a book called We Answer to Another Authority Office and the Image of God. This is what he writes in his introduction. Authority, we will argue, is one of God's good gifts, making life possible in this world, which he created, redeemed, and sustained by his grace. We can no more imagine life without authority than we can conceive of it without sunshine, rain, or the fertility of the soil. More to the point, given that authority is intimately connected to the very image of God, authority is as integral to human life as humanity itself. The deprecation of authority amounts to the deprecation of humanity. By contrast, the redemption of humanity entails, at least in principle, the redemption of authority in all its manifestations. One may not agree with Coisus, but I think he begins in the right place, and that is in creation. Authority is one of God's good gifts. But we live after Immanuel Kant, who viewed being subject to authority as a sign of immaturity, that if we were mature as people, we would no longer be subject to authority. Authority is seen now as demeaning and alienating. And to do a series on the fear of the Lord is difficult because we struggle against that. The second point, and I'll spend much less time on this, the absence of the fear of the Lord is the unholy soil that produces an ungodly life. In Romans chapter 3, Paul does something that I think those of us who are familiar with Romans may totally miss. And that is, from the first verse to about verse 18, he gives a series of quotations from the Old Testament. If you're not familiar with the Old Testament, you might say, oh, Paul wrote this. No, he's quoting the Old Testament. And in verse number 18, he sort of brings it all to a head. He says, there is no fear of God before their eyes. It's a quotation from Psalm 36, verse 1. Why is it that people, all persons, desperately need the salvation that is provided by the Lord Jesus Christ? That is to be received by faith alone, because he alone can give it. Well, it is because of the absence of the fear of the Lord. That's the point Paul's trying to make in Romans chapter 3. And in verses 10 through 18, he, he gives, well, he actually begins in verse 1. I'll begin in verse number 10. As it is written, there is no one righteous, not even one. There is no one who understands God, no one who seeks God. All have turned away. They have all together become worthless. There is no one who does good, not even one. This is a quotation from several places because it's mentioned over and over again. Psalm 14, Psalm 53, Ecclesiastes 7. Their throats are open graves. Their tongues practice deceit. Psalm 5, 9. The poison of vipers is on their lips. Psalm 140, verse 3. Their mouths are full of cursing and bitterness. Psalm 10, verse 7. Their feet are swift to shed blood. Ruin and misery mark their ways and the way of peace they have not known. Isaiah 59. There is no fear of God before their eyes. Consider one of the Psalms that Paul quotes, and that is Psalm 10. It opens with the author being troubled. Why, O Lord, do you stand far off? Why do you hide yourself in times of trouble? In his arrogance, the wicked man hunts down the weak who are caught in the schemes he devises. It's a common question of God's people through the centuries. Old Testament, Old Covenant, New Covenant. Why is it that God doesn't always act immediately when his people are being oppressed? When the weak and the poor are being oppressed by those who are wicked? Why doesn't God do something about it? 
And the psalmist is not simply content to leave it at that. He gives a detailed description of the wicked people who oppress those who are poor. His ways are always prosperous. He is haughty and your laws are far from him. He sneers at all his enemies. He says to himself, nothing will shake me. I'll always be happy and never have trouble. His mouth is full of curses and lies and threats. This is the verse that Paul quoted in Romans 3. Trouble and evil are under his tongue. He lies in wait near the villages. From ambush he murders the innocent, watching in secret for his victims. He lies in wait like a lion in cover. He lies in wait to catch the helpless. He catches the helpless and drags them off in his net. His victims are crushed. They collapse. They fall under his strength. It's a really colorful description of those that the psalmist considers wicked, who oppress those who are in need. I didn't have you turn there, but if you get a chance, look at Psalm 10 later this week, perhaps even today. In verse 4, before the description, and in verse 11, after the description, we find these brackets that tell us why they behave this way. In his pride, the wicked does not seek God. In all his thoughts, there is no room for God. That's why he acts the way that he does. And then verse 11, he says to himself, God has forgotten. He covers his face and never sees. His audience is humanity, not God. God doesn't see what I'm doing. And therefore, because there is no fear of God, the wicked do what they do. The absence of the fear of God is seen in people's behavior, just as the presence of the fear of God should be seen in our behavior as well. Even though I think it is clear that the fear of the Lord is of great importance, at least in Scripture it is, I struggle, and perhaps you struggle, against the notion, in the same way that we struggle against the notion of authority, the idea that we should fear God. But what I want you to take home today is that the fear of the Lord is the soil in which proper conduct grows. If we do not fear God, it's not to say everything we'll do will be wrong, but there will be a real problem. That's where stuff grows. That's where right conduct grows if we fear God. And involved in that is a recognition that God sees all that we do. We are to be aware that he is always with us, wherever we are. And that we are to seek to please him. It isn't simply that we don't want to get caught doing something wrong. We want, in fact, to do what is right and please him. And if we reverence him, if we respect him, if we worship him, then I think that's where things begin to grow and our conduct is what it should be. One last thing for you to consider. Our conduct is rooted in what or who we fear. What do you fear? Who do you fear? That will determine how you behave. We are to fear the Lord. We are to reverence him and respect him and to recognize that he does love us. Let's pray together. Our Father, by your grace, we are your people. You are our God. 
We are people of the new covenant. And one of the blessings we are told, the new covenant, is the fear of the Lord. But we struggle against that notion. The idea that we are to fear you. Living when and where we do, it really it goes against the grain. By your spirit, may we come to see the truth of it. That you are our God. You know what is best for us. We are to humble ourselves and reverence you and worship you. Help us to see that the way we act is really determined by who we fear. What we fear. And as your people, we want to please you. We want to be good Christians. We want to mature as believers. But if we do not fear you, if we fear others, we're going in the wrong direction. Right behavior comes from the right soil, that of the fear of the Lord. By your Spirit, may we think on these things and and work them through. In, In today's world, it just sounds so foreign to us. I pray for the men who will be speaking in March, for Titus, for Ben, for Mike Greenhold. You would guide them as they prepare. and Watch over them. We look forward to hearing from them as they speak to the congregation. Now as we leave this place, may your spirit and your grace go with us. May we always be aware of your presence in our lives. I pray in Jesus' name. Amen.